From first to last, the Bible is clear that salvation is God's work and not ours. But because we are sinful and proud, we resist that truth. We want to believe that we can contribute, that we can help, that we can at least do our part. But when we lay down our pride and receive God's salvation as an undeserved gift, we find there is something wonderful about a salvation that is God's work and not ours. It comes with an unshakable comfort. Think of Jesus' words in John 10 where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What unshakable confidence a verse like that is meant to give us. Or think of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those words are meant to assure us and give us confidence. God wants us to know that he is in control and that we are in his hand and that we have no reason to fear. So we could keep going with verses like that from all over the Bible. But I want us to look together this morning at Romans chapter 8 verses 30 to 31. These words here in Romans 8, 30 and 31 are some of the strongest words of assurance Anywhere in the Bible. I know I keep saying that about these verses in Romans 8, but it's true. So look with me at Romans 8, 30-31. Paul says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Now, these verses uh, give us an unshakable assurance. We're going to start with verse 30, but to get the idea of what's going on in verse 30, we really have to back up a little bit to verse 28, which we looked at last time. Paul says in verse 28 that all things work together for the good of those whom God has called according to his purpose. So God is making sure that all things that happen, good things and bad things, all things are working together to bring about the good, whatever the good is, right? for those whom he has called, for those uh, who love him, for believers in other words. And then in verse 29, we see what that good thing is that all these things are working together for. Paul says in verse 29 that God has foreknown us and he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good, to be made like Jesus. So God is causing all things to work together for the good of those whom he has called. And that means all things are making us more like Christ. And then look at what he says in verse 30. He says, 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what I want you to notice there in that verse, first of all, is that he says over again, and those, and those, and those. And what he is saying to us is that of those who were predestined, All of those were also called. And of those who were called, all of those were justified. And of those who were justified, all of those were glorified. In other words, what Paul is saying is nobody drops out from this process, from God foreknowing you and predestining you to the day when you are glorified, when you see Jesus face to face. No one drops out in the middle. No one gets left out or overlooked. There's no winnowing process here. There's no funnel here. Paul does not say some of those whom God foreknew he predestined, and then some of those he predestined he called, and then some of those he called he justified, and then some of those who were justified end up glorified in the end. He doesn't say that. All those who were foreknown he predestined, and all those he predestined he Called and all those he called, he justified, and all those he justified, he glorified. It's the same people in every category, from foreknown to glorified. It's the same people. No one drops out. God loses none of those that he has brought into fellowship with himself, that he has given the gift of salvation, that he has determined ahead of time to make like Christ. These verses are here, in other words. These verses are here to fix your eyes on the unchanging God and on His unstoppable purpose so that you will have an unshakable assurance. You see, when your assurance is based on how you feel, your assurance goes up and down because your emotions go up and down. When your assurance that God loves you, that you belong to Him, that you're going to be with Him in the end, that you're going to uh, be raised from the dead and, and join Christ in the new creation. Your assurance that all those promises are going to be true for you, if that is based on your performance, on how well you're doing as a Christian, are you reading your Bible, are you uh, praying, are you, uh, you know, loving your neighbor, if your assurance is based on your performance, Your assurance is going to go up and down because your performance is going to go up and down. Some days you do pretty well, some days not so much. But Paul here is seeking to ground our assurance not in ourselves, whether in our emotions or in our performance. He is seeking to ground our assurance in the certainty of God and His purpose and His promise. God doesn't change, and so His purpose doesn't change. God does all that He pleases, the Bible says. Nobody can stop Him from doing what He is determined to do. And so because God is unchanging, and because His plan is unstoppable, once we know that we have been caught up in that plan, that we belong to Christ, then we ought to have an unshakable Assurance. We ought to have confidence 
that as Paul said, the good work that God began in us, he is going to bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the big idea of verse 30. Let's look at the pieces. This verse, verse 30, has been called uh, the golden chain. And the reason why it's been called the golden chain is because somebody has pointed out that these different pieces of verse 30, being predestined, being called, being justified, being glorified, these different pieces, they are not like individual pearls that just happen to be put next to one another on a necklace or a bracelet or something, but that these different pieces are more like a chain. They are interlocked. They are inseparable from one another. And really the chain starts back in verse 29 where it talks about God foreknowing us because it says all those, uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then he tells us what we've been predestined to. And then he comes back in verse 30 to say, and those whom he predestined. So picking up the thought from verse 29, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is a, a golden chain. This is an interlocking set of truths here in these verses about how God has planned and has carried out and has promised to complete our salvation. So what are the links in this chain? Well, it starts again in verse 29 with God foreknowing us. Now I mentioned this last week, so I'm not going to camp out here too long, but remember that to foreknow means more than to know something about. It's not just that God knew we were going to exist or that God knew certain things we were going to do. God knows that about everybody. But not everybody God knows stuff about is also predestined and then ultimately glorified. Foreknown here means that God has an intimate knowledge of us. That he has a relational knowledge of us. In Amos uh, chapter 3 verse 2, God says of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. See, to know in the Bible is more than to know facts. It often implies Relationship. God was in a covenant relationship with Israel and Israel only. That's why he can say, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. In 1 Peter 1.20, God says about uh, the Christ, about Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That means more than God knew about his own son who would come as the Messiah. It means that he had an intimate knowledge of him. The Bible is clear that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed in perfect fellowship and joy before God made anything. So for us to be foreknown by God is not just for God to know certain things about us, but for him to have uh, a relational knowledge, an intimate knowledge of us, to, to set us apart as his people long ago. And Paul says, all those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So he didn't just know us and set us apart as his, but he had a purpose for us. Right? And again, that purpose in verse 29, that he determined ahead of time, that's what, that's what predestined means, that purpose was for him to make us like Christ, for him to conform us to the image of Christ. In other words, for us to be saved and to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And then he says, after 
He mentions predestination. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, here is where we go from what God did and determined long before we were even born to how God's plan and purpose for us from the beginning now intersects with our life in real time. So he's got this plan, right? He's got this purpose. And then at a particular moment in time, that plan uh, comes into effect in our life. And that begins to happen when God calls us. Now, here when he talks about being called, he's not merely talking about... Uh, a call in terms of an invitation. Right? This is why uh, sometimes you'll hear people talk about an external call and an internal call. There, there's a certain kind of call that we call the, the external call when a preacher or a friend extends to somebody an invitation, a call to come to Christ. Right? When, you, when, when I call on somebody to uh, repent and turn to Christ, in the middle of a sermon, when I say, you know, if you're not a Christian and, and you know you need Jesus and you turn to him and you call upon him, you'll be saved. I'm inviting them. I'm calling upon them to turn to Christ. But they can ignore me. Right? They can be not even listening. Right? They can be distracted. They can be disinterested. But this call, this call is what we call the internal call, this call that Paul is talking about here is a call that no one ignores, that no one resists. If you hear this call, if you experience this call, you respond to this call. And the reason why we know that is because all who are called this way end up justified, end up saved, and ultimately end up glorified. So this call that Paul's talking about here, this is what happens when you um, experience And it may not be in a moment. It may be the kind of thing you only see uh, sort of looking back on your life. But at some point, you go from not being interested in Jesus to knowing you need Jesus. At some point, you go, if you're a Christian, at some point, you went from resisting Christ to now turning to Christ and knowing you need Christ. What explains that? What has just happened? God has just called you. God has summoned you to Christ. He's opened your eyes to see the glory and beauty of Jesus, and you can't go anywhere else now. You know you need Him. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's the same kind of thing that Jesus talks about in uh, John 6, 37, when He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The Father gives to the Son a people who come to Him because they are called, they are summoned, they are drawn, as Jesus says in John 6.44, that we are drawn to Christ. That's what He's talking about here. So, those whom He predestined, He called, and then those whom He called, He also justified. This is a great word. This is, this is what Paul was so taken up with at the end of chapter 3 and all through chapter 4 and into chapter 5. The fact that we are justified by faith apart from our works. To be justified means to have your sin forgiven and for God to declare you righteous. Here's some of the things that Paul says about justifications, justification in Romans. He says in Romans 3.28, We hold... 
That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you don't have to do anything to be justified. You just have to believe. In Romans 4.3, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6, which says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's another way of speaking of justification, to be counted righteous. So Paul says this is not new. Even Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. He was counted righteous by God when he believed God's promise. So in the same way, when we believe in Christ who died for our sin and rose for our salvation, when we trust in him, we are justified. Our sins are wiped out, washed away, and we are counted righteous in God's sight. We receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. One more thing Paul says about justification. In Romans 4 verse 5, he says that God justifies the ungodly. That's an important phrase because people often think that in order for them to come to God and be accepted by Him and be loved by Him, that before they can do that, there are certain things they have to get right. There are certain things they have to clean up. There are certain things they think they have to fix for themselves. That's not what the Bible says. Paul says God justifies the ungodly. What you need in order to be counted righteous by God and received by Him and welcomed by Him into His family is to recognize that you're ungodly and to recognize that Jesus alone is perfectly righteous and sinless and He's the only one who can save you and for you to trust in Him. If you trust in Him, you call out to Him and say, I'm a, sa- I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, you're the only one who can save me. Would you make me yours? Would you have mercy on me? <clears throat> he will. He won't turn any away, remember, of all who come to him. So all that is required for you to be counted righteous by God is for you to turn to Christ. You don't have to do any good works. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to clean yourself up. He will justify you if you will come. So all those who he foreknew... He predestined, all those he predestined, he called, all those he called, he justified. And then notice there at the end of verse 30, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, of course, we haven't actually been glorified yet, but it's so certain. Paul speaks of it as though it's already been done. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's that talking about? Remember just a little while ago in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul said that if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. To be glorified with Christ means to be made like Him. The way way Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 20 and 21 is is this, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He returns, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. We'll be glorified, in other words, when Jesus returns and we are raised from the dead and we receive from Him a body that has been transformed into His glorious likeness. Another way the Bible puts it is in 1 John 3, 2, which says this, We know that when He appears, when Jesus appears at His return, we know that when He, repeat, he appears, <clears throat> we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him 
as He is. In other words, this glorification is the consummation of our salvation. It is the moment when we see Jesus face to face and seeing Him are transformed to be as much like Him as it is possible for a human being to be. Now when you read this verse, you might conclude that you haven't been aware of half of the things that God has been up to on your behalf. Maybe you haven't ever thought about being foreknown or predestined, and you haven't thought about being called in this way. You thought about justification, maybe. Thought about glorification, but maybe you haven't even thought about all these things before. That's okay. That's why this verse is here. Paul pulls back the veil on these things, not so that we will be confused or overwhelmed about how all this works, how we can be predestined and called and, and foreknown and all, all of those things. He, he's not concerned with us. He's not desiring us to be concerned with how all these things work just now. What he wants for us is to give us the confidence of knowing that God's plan and purpose for us is sure and certain. And He wants us to have that confidence. He wants us to have that assurance so that whatever suffering, hardship, persecution, difficulty, opposition, accusation, whatever we might face from the enemy or from the world, that we would be able to face those things with a calm assurance that we are in the hand of God and no one can snatch us from Him. You see, later in this chapter, Paul is going to list a dozen things that get thrown at us, that feel like threats, that are opposition, that are uh, hardships, that are difficulties, things that seem to threaten us. But he wants us to know and to be sure That none of those things, as he says at the end of the chapter, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wants us to have confidence that we are in God's hands and that he has had a plan and a purpose for us long before we were even aware of what he might be up to in our lives or in the world. And that he is going to bring that to to pass perfectly at the end. And we know that that's what he's up to in this verse Because of what he says in verse 31. Look at that verse. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, when we read all of this in Romans chapter 8, we read all these great promises. We see Paul pull back the veil on God's plan for us even before we were born. What are we to say? What are we to conclude? How are we to respond to what Paul has said? Two things. One, we are to realize that God is for us. God is for us. One uh, Bible scholar has said this is a summary of the gospel. This phrase right here. God is for us. If you are in Christ, God is for you. He, He foreknew you. He gave you the gift of predetermining, planning ahead of time that He would make you like His Son, the best gift He could give you. He has called you to Himself. He has declared you righteous in Christ. He has promised to glorify you in the presence of Christ, transforming you into the likeness of Christ. He is 
for you, now and forever. And if that's true, here's the second thing. Who can be against you? Who can stand against you? You have an enemy. Satan is your enemy. The world stands in opposition to you. You may have some real, tangible, practical enemies in your life too. Maybe people in your family or people that you work with or people that you live near who are just openly hostile towards you. We all have enemies in opposition. Paul experienced those himself. He's not saying we don't have them. What he is saying is no one and nothing can successfully oppose us. No one can snatch us out of God's hand. No one can interrupt God's plan. No one can thwart God's purpose. No one can step in and mess up what God has planned and purposed to do for you. No one. No one can successfully oppose you. Why? Because God is for you and no plan or purpose of His can be thwarted. He is faithful He is all-powerful. He has promised, and He will bring it to pass. And that ought to give us an unshakable assurance. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for these precious and great promises. We pray, God, that when we have good days and bad days, when we feel like we are being faithful followers of Christ when we feel like we're failures and everything in between. God, help us to go back to these promises. Let these promises be a firm foundation in our hearts and our minds, reminding us, God, that our salvation is ultimately your work, your plan, your purpose that you have promised to bring to pass and that no one, No one can thwart what you have determined to do for us. We give you thanks for the privilege, the grace of being in your hand. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.